I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. I'm Andrew Bloom. Get ready to start Trek. Our intro's bad. Uh, Peace, Andrew. <laughs> we put all the work into the hey. other podcast, and this one's been a real shit show. We'll work <laughs> it out. Uh, welcome to the second episode proper of Star Trek. Thank you, Aaron, for uh, welcoming us to Star Trek. So this week... I was welcoming specifically Andrew, our guest, not you. Um, yeah, you get to be here every week, Peter. So, so <laughs> let me hog the welcome just for this week. Yeah, you yeah, absorb hog. it, Andrew. You earned it. <laughs> Wrap yourself up. <laughs> See, yeah, I don't know the I don't know the energy of this show yet. So we do have to kind of get like uh, a little bit of momentum going. So yeah, thank you so much Pete. for coming on, Andrew. Uh, this is a very exciting episode because yeah. this is, I think this is some people's like favorite Star Trek movie. I, I would say it's definitely by acclamation the best. Uh, considered the best of the original cast films and probably the best of the Star Trek films writ large. I'm saying it's it's all downhill from here, Peter, is, is what I'm trying to put forward. <laughs> That's what I am hoping is not the case, because uh, <laughs> I really liked last week's movie. I really liked this week's movie. But uh, Aaron, what do you think we're doing on this show? What do you think you're doing? In some ways, Pete was right to think the welcome was about him because this is kind of Pete's podcast developed specifically around Pete. Uh, yeah, this podcast, uh, if you don't know Peter and I from We Love to Watch, we co-host a movie podcast that's also on the same feed. And uh, Peter and I have been doing that for a couple years. And uh, Peter messaged me out of the blue about a dream he had about Star Trek V. Uh, and then mentioned, which is weird because I've never seen any Star Trek movie. Which, of course, uh, I believe flabbergasted is an appropriate word, uh, if somewhat a little old-timey, which is not great when we're talking about the future. But, uh, yeah, I was I was shocked. And then, at come to find, if you listen to our intro episode, he had never seen any of the uh, television episodes, uh, even by accident, really. He was blissfully unaware of most things. Uh, Star Trek. And so we decided to go through all the movies, pair them with some episodes that are thematically appropriate. The one for this one is kind of a no-brainer. Uh, but so far we did uh, three episodes of the original series, Devil in the Dark, Amok Time, and Sitting on the Edge of Forever in the motion picture on last week's episode. And uh, yeah, I think those were all a rousing success. Peter was really excited. We're Doing today, we're in the big one, the one that is considered the best, the one that I would consider the best, even if it's not my favorite. Uh, but as a movie, it, it, I really think it is clearly the best Star Trek movie, although a lot does come close. Uh, and that is Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Uh, I always will we'll save Peter's reaction to the film until later in the episode in general. Um I was always – I was worried last week, as I mentioned, that seeing the motion picture would be a, a rough start for him because I know a lot of people, especially non-Star Trek fans, are not a huge fan of that movie. The public at large was not a fan of that movie. I happened to really like it. I was pleasantly surprised that Peter really liked it, and uh, which made me all the more excited for this week's episode because if he was wholly on board with the motion picture – uh, having never really seen much Star Trek, except the three episodes that I had shown him, 
Uh, Star Trek 2 is going to be a wild ride. So uh, we're excited to get your thoughts uh, on the movie as a whole. But before we do that, we have a wonderful guest, Andrew Bloom. Uh, who the second he we he found out we were doing this podcast was like please Star Trek two and um, <laughs> he was in uh, he's in this uh, Star Trek group that I forced Peter to be in for this podcast uh, <laughs> and had seen him very active in there so I was very excited to have him on for this but Andrew why don't you introduce yourself to our audience uh, you're our second guest in a row that has never been on We Love to Watch too so uh, even even followers of that show. And listeners who have come over here uh, might not know you and the work that you do. Uh, and then also give us give us your background on Star Trek. How did you come to know it? What's some of your favorite stuff? And and all that fun uh, jazz, specifically played by Riker uh, with a uh, trombone, or and, and accompanied by Picard with his you know hidden his life flute. flute. Yes. As all jazz should It's all going to make sense to you later, Peter. <laughs> yeah. This all doesn't sound like gobbledygook. Got it. <laughs> well, so yeah, I, first of all, thank you guys so much for having me on the show. Uh, for folks who aren't familiar with me, uh, I am a senior writer at Consequence of Sound, where I review movies and television shows, including Star Trek Discovery. Uh, and I also run my own website, which is theandrewblog.net, where I write about lots of uh, lots more movies and television shows and uh, even more Star Trek and culture writ large. Uh, and I uh, live in Dallas with my wonderful wife and my adorable cat and our happy little home. Um, so I'm, I'm really glad to get a chance to be here and, and share a little slice of my nerdiness with you guys to be a part of this this uh, magnificent journey through the the Star Trek movies. Um, my personal history with Star Trek is a, a little weird. Uh, I grew up watching the Next Generation show with my parents. Uh, my parents were very big into that show. Uh, a lot of their close friends were into that show as well. So we sort of had this weird family let's all get together and watch Captain Picard go on these adventures. And that was very much my entree into Star Trek when I was very young and, and in retrospect, probably didn't understand as much of it as I, I yeah. hope I do today. Yeah. There's a lot of, there's a lot of those old episodes where Picard just wants to get fucked. So I don't know. <laughs> there's, a, there's definitely stuff that I realize now, like, Oh, that was entirely over my head. Like, yeah, this was a, a giant metaphor for contraception or a giant metaphor yeah. for, you know, all these sorts of things that it's probably best that four year olds don't understand completely yet. Yes. Um, <laughs> but which is to say that, that Star Trek has been with me uh, from a very young age. Um, I consider it kind of foundational for me in a lot of ways, particularly the next generation, because, you know, my, my degree is in politics and philosophy, and I feel like there's a certain inquisitiveness to Star Trek, a certain sense of thought experiments where it's constantly asking questions about what is humanity and what is identity and what is the right way to live a life. And at the same time, asking political questions about how do different communities interact with one another, uh, what is good leadership, and how do people find ways to form a society uh, in sort of this Wild West frontier that is outer space. And so, it, it, you know, from that young age, I feel like it's something that burrowed pretty deep inside of me. Um, I, I followed sort of the, the trajectory of the shows of that time. Uh, I watched all of Next Generation and had revisited a couple times over the years, uh, but contemporaneously watched uh, Deep Space Nine and then 
started watching Voyager and kind of, I think that's where my, my Trek fandom kind of started to wane yeah. and, and faded out. I did see the finish of it, so I'm, I'm a little bit ahead of the curve. And then I've, I've only seen a couple of episodes of Enterprise. Uh, so I, I'm, I guess I can't claim to be the, uh, the perfect Trekkie or anything like that. And, and then the weird second half of my journey is that when I found out that Star Trek Discovery was coming out uh, and was announced a couple of years ago, I uh, found out that it was going to be set about 10 years before the original series and thought this was the perfect time for somebody like me who had never watched the original series but was super into Star Trek from the, the things that were contemporaneous to me when I was a kid to go back and revisit the show. So really just, you know, in the last, I guess, couple years, I watched all 79 episodes of the original series. I watched uh, the animated series. I watched all of the movies and episodes after that that had the original cast in them. And I even watched one uh, very, not very good fan film that actually had uh, Uhura and Chekhov in it to make sure I had <laughs> fully uh, gotten as much of the original series as I possibly could. So uh, the answer is I, I consider myself a Trekkie, but I am, am not that far removed from being you, Peter, and having not seen any of these movies and coming to them rather fresh. So it's it's exciting to get to, to revisit them, but at the same time, you know, kind of like we're doing it in, in sequence. That's awesome. Um, and I totally – you know, we didn't mention the animated series. I kind of forgot that was a thing. Uh, I didn't know that was a thing at all. It actually would be my first uh, my first foray into Star Trek because that was on Nickelodeon when I was like three or four. Oh, really? Uh, like during the day. Yeah. They were showing – they would show reruns of it at random times. Uh, and I remember watching it well before I ever saw any of the other Star Trek stuff. But yeah. That is that is awesome and also very similar to myself and our last guest where Deep Space Nine was like the last thing we finished. <laughs> Voyager <laughs> breaks a lot of wills. It does. <laughs> it's uh, Yeah, and also uh, you kind of spoiled the surprise, but this is secretly just a trick to eventually, as we run out of real movies, to make Peter watch a bunch of fan films. So don't <laughs> tell him. Uh, but that's where this is eventually going. Well, you know, I, I, I was like, it has Chekhov in it. It has Uhura, like the actual uh, Nichelle Nichols and uh, yeah. Walter Koenig. It had the actor who played Harry Kim in it. I assumed like, okay, fan film, but maybe this was something a little above, you know, two guys throwing plastic phasers at each other in their backyard. But it's... Uh, you got to be really deep in to want to want to keep up with. Yeah, that. Do, you those out? do you rank uh, it higher than Into Darkness? Yes or no? It, it's definitely not Into Darkness. Into Darkness is a competent <laughs> film. It may not be a good film, but it's a competent <laughs> film. You you would actually call it a film as opposed to here is a bunch of scenes starring people that you recognize that may or may not have anything to do with one another or be comprehensible. So yeah, I'm sure which uh, which movie you were describing in that former letter situation. <laughs> uh, it's funny because yeah, Pierre the two he has seen the 2009 and the uh, the remake and Into Darkness. Uh, he didn't like Into Darkness then, uh, and part of the reason we're revisiting those three and and showing him Beyond for the first time is a Beyond is great. I'm excited to show it to him. Uh, and B, I think you can't appreciate how infuriating Into Darkness can be until you've seen The Wrath of Khan. So uh, I definitely want to circle back uh, to make sure he gets the chance to see that. So 
Uh, it'd be angry. Yeah, yes. you want to circle back so you can hurt me again. But this yeah. time I know the pain is coming. Yeah, before uh, you were just like, is this, this is martyrs? confusing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh. The first one's a surprise. The second one you know is coming. Uh, yeah, that's great. So any other, so what are some, uh, what are some of your like favorite Favorite episodes, favorite movies. As we get into this, what are what are the things uh, that that you, as you look back on your Star Trek fandom and all the the stuff that kind of still resonates with you uh, from a from a movie or, or TV perspective? So I would say, in terms of of the episodes, uh, I'm a pretty generic. Uh, Trek fan in terms of the things that are my favorites. Uh, I really love Measure of a Man, which uh, oh, Peter yeah. is a, an episode where uh, I, I know you've talked about Data, the android. Uh, they have what a being trial for him, which is uh, a court proceeding to decide whether or not he counts as a person and has rights of self-preservation and, and agency and things like that. And it, it's one of those episodes that, again, is very philosophical, but also very much about law and society and politics and, and both how do we approach these philosophical questions, but at the same time, how do we implement them in a practical way while maintaining character conflicts? Like this isn't just a, an abstract highfalutin, what do we do with this, uh, you know, what do you do with a robot-like data kind of question? Uh, and then suddenly he, he starts seeing the hills are alive or something like that. Uh, but it's, it's about... <laughs> How Data feels and how Captain Picard feels and how Commander Riker feels. And that, that, to me, is the core of Star Trek, is balancing those highfalutin ideals with the down-to-earth character work that makes it uh, unique and, and brings it home for you. Uh, and I guess my, I think my favorite episode of the original series is probably uh, The Metamorphosis, which is... Uh, oh, guess, the Cochrane one, right? Yeah, yeah, the Cochrane one. I guess so many episodes of, of both the original series and the subsequent series are about the our heroes meeting some new civilization or some new form of life. And at the end of the day, there's there's variations, but they're basically human. They're they represent some exaggeration of a human idea, but for the most part they are human like. They're forehead aliens, as I think is the yeah. <laughs> kind of kind of running gag. <laughs> yeah. And and yet in the metamorphosis, it, the, the alien is this uh, beam of light that nevertheless falls in love with a human being. And it, it explores that idea with a commitment to it without just turning it into a, a jokey Bazooka Joe comic kind of thing. It, it commits to it and, and really explores that in the same way and in a little bit of the same way that Measure of a Man does. It, it takes a kind of outlandish idea and plays it seriously and sincerely. And I think that's a, a strength of Star Trek as well. Yeah. I really want to show Peter metamorphosis at some point. I, I might try to do it as kind of a double pairing when we get to first contact. Mm. Um, because obviously there is a, there is a shared character between those two movies, even if they're just uh, almost shared in, in name only. <laughs> it's uh, true. But, but uh, that is such a great episode. And that was uh you know, back when I started uh, going through Star Trek before I was able to watch, like, all the seasons on DVD, the original series, it was a lot of those, like, clamshell VHS cases that they would have at rental stores. And, like, what, when you had to pick a rental, like, you could pick a movie or one episode, one 50-minute episode of Star Trek when I was a kid. And I, I still rented every single one of those that I could. And they stopped usually after – uh, after the first season, but I remember uh, Metamorphosis was one of the few ones that they they had from like the second season. So uh, I was I was that nerd who saw 
first contacts when I was 12 in theaters and being like, Zephyrin Cochran, the <laughs> guy that married the light. <laughs> For more information on Zephyrin Cochran, consult your local library. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, it, it, consult the Star Trek chronology book. Um, <laughs> yeah, I guess memory so yeah. alpha probably didn't exist at that time, unfortunately. It, didn't, it was a... It was like, so I had a few incarnations of this. There's a book called Star Trek Chronology, and the entire book was like any date mentioned in the series was in the, uh, was in this whole, it was just a timeline. That's it. So, like, on 2279, you know, this happens to this person, and then it would go all the way back. So, like, uh, 2061, Zephyrin Cochran disappears, you know, and then it would have that episode later on, and it would have each, like, actual episode, but everything else. So, that was, like, that was, and then, but, of course, they were still producing Deep Space Nine and Voyager, so so every couple years, they would have, like, updated Star Trek chronology. Uh, Sell more books that way. Sell more books, yeah. Got to tell all the new events that occurred in the fake past. <laughs> Though um, I'm, I'm impressed because the timeline in the original series makes no sense. Like the star dates don't don't line up well, if I remember correctly. They they did good though. I think there is uh, something that happens later on that um, I want to say it might be in relics. The mm-hmm. Scotty episode in Next Generation where they say how many years ago. It was uh, from when their mission okay. ended, and then like that kind of bridges the gap on how how long motion picture was from, and they kind of do it that way. But there there is like some line of dialogue in the Next Generation that puts a specific date, and you know the dates in Next Generation, I think, because of uh, uh, stuff on the screen in the first season episode, conspiracy. Mm. So. so appropriately enough, Relics is the Rosetta Stone for Star Trek dates. Very appropriately, correct. <laughs> um, uh, I love, I love this. This is why I actually really like having guests on this show. I like when we just say gobbledygook that Peter absorbs. <laughs> yeah, if um, we didn't have a guest, I would just be going, uh huh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then um, it would be like you're talking to your dad again. Did um, you know, Peter, that there's like. Uh, I don't know if we've ever talked about it, that on The Next Generation, there is, uh, I want to say, three original series characters that Spock, Scotty, and McCoy all show up. I thought you were going to say that are all uh, makes make those three characters Eskimo brothers. Um, <laughs> oh, no. <God>. <laughs> no. Uh, can, you, uh, can you tell me those three episodes? Yeah, they all show up. Uh, oh, cool. it's, so it's the pilot, uh, Relics, which is uh, Scotty's, and then... Uh, a two-parter with Spock. So the movies are weirdly enough like they're, they are reunions, but they're not like <laughs> it's not like an office reunion where like it's a proper reunion. Like these people didn't work with the, each other extensively, right? No, um, it's it, Next Generation is like nine years later. I forget. Is it on? Is it on the introduction episode that we found out that you didn't know that it was like one chronology? I thought there was sort of a reboot situation. I oh, thought it was it. like. I thought it was like, well, yeah, everybody is just kind of another ship going out into space and there's nothing that really connects it except for like, you know, some of the species were reimagined. The The twist in one of the new Star, one of the new Star Trek movies, one of the J.J. Abrams ones, is that 
Spock is still alive. The alternate version is alive on some snow planet. And, and then that's when I started like scratching my head. Like, is this a new thing? These sort of mixed chronologies uh, or is this a continuation? And that was one of those like uh, nerd uh, fan service moments in the new movies that I was like, I, yeah, like I get it. Leonard, Leonard Nimoy. What does this mean? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, sure. I'm sure it was uh, perplexing being that that was the first Star Trek thing you ever saw. It was like, wait, there's two Spocks? They got old Spock and new Spock? Um, It'd be like, it would be like, um... I don't think there's an equivalent to, like, restarting a series as an alternate universe where all of the original events still occur. <laughs> and side note on that, there was a whole appendix in the Star Trek chronology, chronology about all the different alternate universes that they had created uh, throughout the, their explorations. <laughs> I was going to say, wow. doesn't doesn't the uh, the CW DC comic shows haven't they kind of acknowledged the '90s Flash show as having taken place in an alternate universe? Oh, I have no idea. I've I've been meaning to get into those, but this time it seems almost as uh, much of a much of an endeavor as uh, getting Pete into Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe that'll be the next sub series. Yeah, <laughs> I will say, Andrew, the the things that attract me to the series. Uh, and, and the things that I'm loving about the series is that sort of humanist uh, philosophy and the fact that that great character drama, even when the performances aren't always there, as like Shatner becomes a worse actor as the show goes on and the movies go on in a lot of ways. Um, uh, he doesn't get worse. That's just Shatner. Oh, OK. He gets more Shatnerian. Yes. Um, <laughs> he actually just goes through his own metamorphosis and becomes <laughs> one. Um, he, but he, but the, the, the performances tend to be, uh, especially in the early episodes, really round out what the dramatic conflict is and the dramatic conflicts tend to be really compelling for something of this era and of this ilk where they could have just been sort of pat like, well, we're really glad we didn't genocide that race. Anyways, like instead (laughs) they get in, they have these episodes that have these like awkward sort of did we do the right thing endings and that's what is making me attracted to the show the sort of like the moral ambiguity of real humans and real situation and it helps separate this star trek franchise from uh star wars and other space operas which tend to deal with absolutes and um Contrary to what the Yoda quote is, like Star Wars is all about absolutes. It's all about absolute good and absolute evil, and you got to find out where you fall. Was Star Wars made by a Sith? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. Oh, no. The Siths went in the end, and they wrote their history books. (laughs) Well, and as much as as Roddenberry had some not great instincts as a storyteller, he really uh, imbued the the series from the start of, like, this is the – these are the morals of these people. This is the morals of the Federation that kind of that kind of go throughout the series and him kind of trying to put all the best parts of humanity as he saw them into what our future was going to be is really why I think that this this series as a whole has persisted for for as long as it has in so many different incarnations and entries. And I also, you know, we didn't really get into this in the first couple episodes, but I also realized that, like, stuff like this, stuff like uh, Sesame Street, stuff like Mr. Rogers, these things that I watched uh, growing up that were just shows I liked. But, you know, they they kind of ended up informing my morality today in ways that I was never expecting watching this. 
but there there is a I think there is some true good to the world. Peter and I Peter and I talk about that we do think that movies and TV have influences on on who people end up becoming in a way that I know some people don't always agree with, but like I I definitely uh, gravitate towards like the morality of the characters I looked up on on TV shows like Sesame Street and the Muppets and and Star Trek more than even you know my parents said a, at a as a rebellious kid in general um and so like the fact that I was able to find shows like Star Trek that uh, at their best reinforce the best qualities of humanity I think uh, is no, it's not a flippant statement to say that it's part part of what made me who I am today. I think watching the show, you can see the moral lessons being wrangled with, and sort of recognize that if I were, you know, if you were younger and and you were in a very like impressionable position, I think you'd be like your parents could be proud of you having gone through a Star Wars, a Star Trek episode, like. Uh, I, I think the morality has rarely stumbled for me so far, and I've been like, oh, this is something I would love to show my kids is like a weird morality plays and like weird adventures and like how to how to keep your mind open. Because even the episodes that are just sort of weird lore diving um, approach that with a very uh, a humanist, optimistic perspective. And that's yeah, that's what's keeping me really interested in the series and especially in this like brutally cynical era. It's so nice to have something that's like, okay, like everything's shitty right now, but maybe after a eugenics war, I don't know, uh, <laughs> everything's going to be great. Like we're going to be traveling the stars, like your great, great, great ancestors are going to be like, I don't know, making love with aliens and talking through moral problems instead of just blowing everyone up. Uh, there's like a, that optimism and stuff feels good, not just for, you know, our past, but also for our future and our present. There's an implicit optimism to Star Trek, and it's exactly what you're talking about, Peter, that even when Star Trek gets a little cynical or gets a little dark, which it does in places, even before J.J. Abrams put it in the movie title, it is... <laughs> Based on the assumption that humanity is going to overcome its differences, is going to survive whatever threats persist, and is going to reach this age when there is no money, there is no internecine conflict in the same way, that we have achieved this great scientific uh, triumph, and that our, our problems, at least in this in the Federation, are solved through high-minded debate and understanding for the most part. Like the very fact that it, it predicts that humanity will get to this point makes it implicitly optimistic even before you start telling the story, which I think I've always found kind of inspiring and hopeful in and of itself. No, that is that is perfect. And that's uh, that's why I'm glad. I'm, I'm not surprised that, uh, Peter, from your perspective, that you end up gravitating towards that. I think you mentioned that you initially thought of Star Trek as almost exclusively Twilight Zone type morality plays. Uh, and while it's not exclusively that, it is very much under underlaying the foundation of everything that they end up doing. Like, you, you know where these characters stand. You know what their morality is. So even if... Uh, even if the thing they're facing uh, in that given week is that there's two Picards that are six minutes apart or whatever it is in that episode, <laughs> like, like you still kind of know who they are as people. And critically important, you know who all these other characters are in a series that um, 
that, you know, didn't have the same guest actors from week to week. Like, in general, if you met a fe- someone from the Federation or from Vulcan or whatever – or Klingon or anything else, you had a sense of who they were and what their what their motivations were uh, unless they were like fucking a shitty one like uh, Terry O'Quinn or whatever. But <laughs> – um, so I think we should move on. We have a lot to talk about. Let's uh, talk a little bit about Space Seed, and then we'll get into the meat of this episode, uh, Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan. Uh, so Space Seed uh, is, the, is an episode of Star Trek. It features Khan. They find that uh, Khan, who's one of the dictators uh, of the eugenics wars from the 90s, uh, and some other of these uh, these kind of uh, superhumans from an intelligence and a strength perspective, but were set afloat as prisoners into space. Uh, they don't the the starship crew doesn't know that at first. They just think they're humans from the nineties. Uh, and while they're figuring that out, Khan um, Khan uses their their a little bit too forthcomingness with information. Uh, like here's here's how our engines work. Take them um, <laughs> uh, to take over the ship and to threaten Kirk and his crew. And ultimately, it kind of turns into a morality play of uh, I am I am smarter and I'm better than you, and I can get you guys to join my side. And uh, with the exception of the historian on board, he is he's very unsuccessful in getting people to do that. Uh, and ultimately, his. His singular desire to prove his superiority is his undoing. Uh, they banish him and his crew to SETI Alpha, Alpha 5, which will set up what we're uh, about to talk about next. So so I did see this one as a kid. Uh, I saw it before Star Trek 2, uh, knowing that Khan was going to be in it. Uh, and I really liked it then. I really like it now. Uh, the part I mentioned... Uh, is really my favorite part that it really is about how Khan um, wants people to be on his side, and he is so convinced that that he is right that he gets completely uh, completely caught up with that. Um, it kind of reminds me of um, it. Kind of speaks to something even today and in in our history as well. Is that ultimately what like there's an insecurity to fascism that. Uh, that always besets the movement and that what fascists want more than all is validation from from people who aren't uh, mindlessly following them because that's such a big part about fascism. If you're a good fascist and you're a good authoritarian leader, you almost have a a cult-like power over – People that follow you and so where you look for for external validation is from people that you can continually get to join your side. Uh, and I thought that – It doesn't Khan, sound like anyone that's in power right now. No. <laughs> oh, no. It's, uh, well, it, it did feel like resonant with that's, – that's always the great thing about Star Trek is that it, it never feel – a lot of it never feels like it ages. And that part, it gets completely right that this that this kind of fascist who has people that do his bidding would just get completely hung up on first Kirk – uh, admitting how smart and what a genius he was in joining him, and then at the end, like desperately turning to everyone in the crew and going, uh, "Anyone, if anyone just says hey, I'm on your side, I'll, I'll let Kirk live," like um, that he is ultimately brought down by um, the fact that um, you know he he is an asshole, and people uh, that aren't part of his brainwash cult uh, can see that. 
Yeah, that that makes the the fact that it is a Star Trek episode uh, so much more enticing for me. If it was just about a hero uh, overcoming a fascist, like, yeah, that could be a fun story. It could be a great story. But the fact that it's a Star Trek story uh, adds an extra layer to it because Star Trek is so much about um, us being our best selves into this far-flung future. And this is an episode that very much looks back at the, ra- the uh, existence of humanity almost in, like, a lore way. Like, it feels almost like a Fallout game in a way, um, <laughs> where it's like, yeah, a lot of bad shit happened during this era, and then you get little, like, drops of that lore. Like, oh, well, first they took over Southeast Asia or whatever, and then later they were, you know, taken down and imprisoned in this place called Botany Bay and yada yada. Like, these little, and they're such, like evocative names and there's such evocative imagery when they, it, that's just dropped in a couple lines that makes you really invested really quickly and the episode moves like thunder just like the actual movie wrath of khan it moves like thunder like or they find the ship pretty much immediately and then the episode just kind of rolls from there which is uh which is really good efficient tv storytelling where some of these up ep- these 50 minute episodes episodes can feel kind of sweaty like this gets right into its messaging, and it's interesting immediately. So I'm a little bit of a contrarian on Space Seed. As much as I like Wrath of Khan, I actually don't think Space Seed is too great of an episode. And I think a big part of that is, for me, as much as they set up this Kirk versus fascist dichotomy, there's a strain of, frankly, Nazi apologia in the original series, which is frankly a little peculiar. And it, it, it fits into this larger theme that runs through the series of admiring great men, whether it is an unfrozen tyrant from ages ago or a literal god of some kind or Kirk himself. It feels like Roddenberry's show is devoted to the idea that there are just certain figures who, whatever they choose to do are too great to be punished. And you, you see it in Space Seed. Uh, you see it in an early episode, uh, Conscience of the King, where you have a yep. similar, uh, you know, basically Nazi metaphor who is is feeded as having just made a very difficult choice. And you see it in an episode where they literally go to <laughs> a kind of Nazi society. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I feel like this oh, these are all outdated ideas and that's how we're able to best you is undermined by the choice at the end of the episode to say, Khan is just too great to to put away. We need to yeah. put him on his, you know, maybe he's Napoleon going to Elba. We have to give him his wilderness to tame because this talent, this ability is too great to waste no matter what horrible things he may have done in the past. And it's... Well- so I have a question before we get too deep in that. Is there a, a Star Trek prison? <laughs> like, it, was there a plan B other than dumping him on a planet? Because I know the, the plan A would never be, or sorry, there's no plan C to shoot him in the head like I think most people would. <laughs> there, there's definitely, I mean, there's, there's definitely Star Trek prisons. Jail? I mean, they're probably more re-education camps, but not in like a negative <laughs> way. Like, well, okay. like they, they like they teach you maybe like some good skills to better your life. But I mean, uh, there's court martials and people can get me in how to knit. Yeah. <laughs> what is it, isn't uh, Tom Paris is in a, a penal colony of some kind when yeah. Captain Janeway finds him? Okay, yeah, so there, it, it, there was a plan B. I assumed that the that I assumed that the decision was between dropping him on a desolate planet, which is probable death which we find out later was almost definite death or shooting him, which is not even considered at all. Or there's, there, 
There's actually, now that I think of it, there's an original series episode where Kirk goes to the, like, jail for supervillains, basically. So they could have put yeah. him there. Okay. Well, and they also have a couple of court martial episodes, and there's implication of uh, jail time for certain captains that break the rules. Yeah. Okay. Oh, so so my my take on that from you know I'm a, this is obviously from a layman's perspective but I guess that's why we have the show. There is yes in in a lot of these episodes I'm seeing this sort of like um, almost reverence for someone that could do something big even if that something big is horrible. Well, a I feel like that's a very honest appraisal of man's dark interests because like people still talk about Genghis Khan. Like, oh, yeah, he just Genghis Khan'd him. He just came in and he just rocked everybody. Like, it, it's some sort of um, thing to aspire to. That man was responsible for mass genocide, mass rape. He completely reformed a continent through these violent actions. He was he was a mega Hitler of his time. And uh, yet he's like, history has sort of flattened his image out to be just great conquer. Same thing with Alexander the Great. The same thing with, obviously, Hitler in a more common uh, or more modern context. And there's a great little conversation that happens that addresses this. And that's why I think the show is, is aware of that. Because um, uh, Kirk and um, Kirk and the couple other crew members, probably Doc, are talking about how how like how incredible it is that they managed to do this. These great conquerors, and then Spock is disgusted, um, and he says like. How could you admire monsters like this? And it, it, which almost seems like an unspock thing, but I guess the Spock thing is to sort of be—he's the rational one when everyone's being irrational, and he's the like—and he's feeling human when everyone else is being like too irrational. Um, and he he says uh, that's completely illogical. And then Kirk says totally, and then the scene moves on. <laughs> and I think that's a great way to recognize like that we as as people, right or wrong, do look back at these conquerors and say like they were great men, not in a moral sense, but in like a larger than life sense. And Spock is understandably being like, no, he was an asshole. Why are you looking at him this way? And he's like calling out humanity for glorifying figures like this. So th th it is recognizing that at least. But I think that's a little undercut by the end of the episode, as Andrew mentions, where like Kirk's like, man, I'd like to go see what those guys, those those murderous fascist build. <laughs> and Spock's like, yeah, me too, actually. Now that you mention that, kind of curious. Um, but I, I think you're right, Andrew. But I think it speaks to a, uh, a, a bigger, I don't want to say problem, but a bigger part of what 60s Star Trek uh, and even Gen Next Generation was trying to do. Um, which is really to remove themselves from like the humanity of the 19, you know, the pre 21st century as kind of this primitive thing that they almost look, don't look, they do look down on, but it almost be, ends up being like inquisitive, like, oh, interesting. Like these are specimens in a lab as opposed to like real people that they see as equivalents that can do harm. And I think. What, why I'm saying it's a problem, it's not a problem that that's the way they view it, but I think that was Roddenberry's attempt to really kind of show how evolved humanity had become in a short period of time that that even the greatest monsters of the 20th century would be looked down. Like, th there's enough um, social stability and removal from that that you can look down on it as something to be inquisitive about, like uh, like something that happened a billion years ago or something like that. Uh, I think that was the attempt, and they do that in a lot of Star Trek episodes, 
to really distance themselves from present times. But where I think you're 100% right, it undercuts a lot of Star Trek's message is that Star Trek was also very much trying to be morality plays of existing times. So I think the ultimate result of those two conflicting things makes it feel like a lot of Star Trek characters give historical monsters or like different alien species monsters that they're not supposed to interfere with them prime directive uh, a lot of uh free passes and and conversely they decide that hey if this society is operating in some way that we don't like we're just gonna blow up the thing and let the pieces fall where they may because we're <laughs> yeah. starfleet and that's what we do or at least i'm captain kirk and that's what i do <laughs> yeah that's my biggest bit question mark is i do not understand the prime directive or whether or not the show thinks it works or not so the prime directive and i think it, it speaks to your point aaron is uh, uh, Roddenberry is on record in an interview saying that it's the anthropologist's code to some degree that you're supposed to come to investigate and explore without disturbing, without interfering. And that was his approach to it. And you can kind of see him attempting that same approach whenever you do have the modern day Kirk and Spock crew interacting with some facet of the 20th century or the 19th century. But at the same time, I, I don't know, maybe this is just my personal bias, but I feel like anytime there's a debate between Kirk and Spock, the show is almost always taking Kirk's side. The show is yeah, almost I, I always that. positing that Spock is too in his pigeonhole as a Vulcan and just doesn't understand the soul of humanity that gives us greater understanding and greater feeling and greater experience than even a, a half-human uh, individual like Spock could ever know. And I, I don't know. It it rubs me the wrong way and, frankly, a way that uh, also the gender politics of Space Seed do. I, I find yeah. it very uncomfortable how Khan is able to turn Marla McGivers into this googly-eyed schoolgirl who will do whatever he says whenever he wants uh, great. I guess she has her turn at the end, but but at least she is enraptured by this man because he is a great man and he makes eyes at her and that's all she needs to go weak at the knees. It's uh, I I have issue with it at least. I also think about that that with that exchange, I think that the show kind of grounds it well in making it an abusive relationship. If you view it as like he is using these like. Uh, abuser's powers to break her will whenever he can and sort of like grind her in the dirt and then give her like a little bit of reprieve just enough that she can know what it feels like and then if she gets too big of a head about it he grinds her in the dirt again like that sort of abusive relationship makes this episode really hard to watch dramatically but it is like oddly compelling like ricardo montalban does a lot of subtle things with his eyes that you, clearly he's supposed to have some sort of magical power over women which is like i i don't i don't entirely understand he's a very good looking man but like i don't i don't know why any why the one woman singled out in this uh, episode would be so weak at the knees for him but it is interesting how they play it as more than just like she's mesmerized she he is actively using techniques to to break her down and you can see sort of like abusers will and fascists will um, in a little bit of like a, a small drama. So there is a little bit of component. I get I guarantee this was not the authorial intent, though, but I almost saw it this time around, which kind of made some of that stuff go down easier as almost a like 
uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal, James Spader relationship and secretary, because even before Khan has kind of got his hooks into her she keeps telling kirk and spock that like yeah no i want like an old-timey man to dominate me uh and not be one of those weak will now i guarantee the writers from the 60s were not looking at from sort of some sort of sadomasochistic relationship but like she is saying early on of her own agency that what i want out of a relationship is is this and she finds that in Khan. But that's kind of problematic in and of itself when you have this character written as the the affection for the past when men were men and took what yeah. they wanted. I no, just, that's that's a very good point. It's similar to the – yes, I, I think similar to the, the way that Kirk and the, the rest of the crew are romanticizing great men, capital G, great men, but not necessarily good men. I think you can also see the way that people um, – Another honest thing about humanity is that people idolize uh, bad boys and people that like is people that exert their will no matter what. Like we see them, we do that even on a smaller scale with you know people like Steve Jobs or something. Like people are like that guy was a huge fucking asshole. Like he treated his children like shit. He treated his subordinates like shit. Like yeah, look how and many people pe- fucking love Elon Musk. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Then people will be like, "Yeah, he might step on some toes, but uh, you know, he he shows his will. He's he's a strong man." Um, but I think people can be seduced by that and then not recognize the hypocrisy that people are being hurt, and they don't actually like being the, the in the spotlight of that of that man's wrath. Usually, man, but not always. But that man's wrath. Um, but they do kind Con's of like wrath see- specifically. So I think that is another thing that's sort of honest about people, not necessarily that women can be, you know, weak at the knees by some, uh, you know, strong willed man, um, but that people can be seduced by fascism because it's someone with a willpower, someone who doesn't care about offending people, someone that just knows what they want and they're seeking it out can be very sexy to people, whether or not that ultimate will is evil. So. I think uh, – and Andrew, you kind of alluded to this. I think that there's a there's an inherent conflict in Star Trek that needs like a last Jedi resolution where <laughs> the, the people that – the people that made the show were seeing these people as essentially like perfect idealized versions of what humanity could bring. Now, the show was made by 1960s humans who st- – tried their best but also really fucked up in a lot of ways i mean the last episode of the original series is like a woman captain that seems a little <laughs> great i mean it has is and it has a, yeah very much so. yes sadly um, and kirk uh, switches bodies with her and she he finds out what it's like to be uh, it's like black like me but oh with, it's like or like yeah. what women want yeah uh except they literally switch bodies and then oh. no one respects him and he's like what uh this is 2250 uh but uh so but that's so that's the problem and i think that's always been the problem with star trek is that there almost needs to be a thing of like yeah even though the federation had high-minded ideals and um and thought this way and and thought they were these like 
epitomes of humanity. They were they were human. They were fallible, and in some ways, their insistence their insistence that they always had the right uh, morality caused a lot of these underlying issues where they were, say, letting fascists off the hook and still being incredibly sexist or misogynistic or all the other things that unfortunately Star Trek does sometimes hit into at a lot of points. Um, and I think there actually is a little bit of that in Deep Space Nine in the later seasons where. Uh, there's all these kind of like things that Cisco finds out about, like how the Federation was using, uh, there's, I think it's like section 43, how they were using, um, uh, 31. Star- Is that right? section 31. Yeah. Start that's, they were using Starfleet's high minded, uh, ideology in this, like almost propaganda of how good they were and how perfect to kind of do, uh, all these like dirty things, uh, in the background, um, and then kind of fooling everyone to not thinking they exist by the fact that we're the Federation or we're Starfleet and we're perfect. And uh, that's one of the reasons why Deep Space Nine fucking rules. Uh, <laughs> but it's but it's not it's not the same thing as like the, the last Jedi kind of fixing the prequels in like one sentence where it's like, oh, yeah, no, the Jedis were bad. They were all bad at their jobs. That's the problem. <laughs> yeah, like, I, think for, oh! I think something that would recognize the hypocrisy, but also like ground some things that seem like contradictions would be really interesting for all this because i i think the the reboots sort of were like hey we're going to reintroduce people to these concepts but they don't actually have the time or the interest in getting into the nuance of it oh um, uh, well no they're primarily about 9-11 they're primarily <laughs> about 9-11 inside job we may never know um, oh. well for so, that in like what 12 months yeah uh, <laughs> Well, for what it's worth, there is an episode of Voyager where they they use some weird uh, magic amulet. I don't want to get into it. And Sulu uh, shows up. They basically actually flash oh, yeah. back to a movie that you will uh, you will get to. But uh, there is a throwaway line from Captain Janeway where she says she's sort of reminiscing about the the days of the Federation in the time of Kirk and Spock and Sulu. So like, oh, yeah, they would have gotten thrown out of Starfleet 12 times if they tried that stuff today. <laughs> this isn't actually, I don't think, a paradise of, of uh, idealism. This is not some perfect utopia. Utopia is a journey, not a destination, so to speak. Like, you have to constantly be working towards that utopia. Yeah, and you can almost track progress by the series, even though it's not utopia for 2022. You can see, like, oh, this was their version of uh, being woke in the 60s, and it still had a lot of problems. And if you watch Next Generation, this was, like, them doing the same thing in the 80s, and it kind of goes on. So it, it tracks progress as a culture in a in kind of a weird way because it's so far into the future, but it still is tracking that progress. Um and Andrew, to your point, I, it's not just the that Voyager episode. If you remember, like uh, in Relics and in Star Trek Generations, anytime anyone explains what they used to do, they're like, "Are you <laughs> fucking insane? Like, that's, that's not how any of this works. Like, you do what?" So there is even there is even a recognition of anytime they meet these people from our far flung future that a uh, hundred years is still a hundred years, and, uh, <laughs> and and things change, but. Uh, I think that this is the perfect time to get into. I don't know if it's the perfect time, Aaron, because I think we kind of tiptoed around something. Well, what do you want to? What do you want? uh, I mean, I think we should talk about before we get to the movie. Okay, what do you want to talk about? I mean, is Ricardo Montalban hot? Yes or no? (laughs) Of course. (laughs) I mean, 
He's kind of hot. I think, he's, hot I think he's hotter in Star Trek Two, where uh, they don't put as much bronzer on. <laughs> Bronzer's the nicest way I can put that. In the original one, he's like this like lean figure and he makes all these like subtle face movements when he's trying to seduce the uh, MacGyvers and he braids her hair, which is like a very strange touch and I think adds to my uh, my theory that he's modeled after a uh, abusive partner. So he's like, look how, <laughs> look how sweet I am. And then three minutes later, he's like, did you get my beer? Like, he- <laughs> shoot Kirk. Put your boss in a box. <laughs> I'm going out for space smokes. <laughs> he, it's definitely interesting how quickly they establish this character and it makes sense. Let me redo that. It's fascinating how potent this character is so quickly. And a lot of it has to do with Montalban's uh, subtle yeah. performance, which, you know, like a lot of the characters get gets less subtle in the movies uh, and later on. But um, I don't think fans would love the sequel as much if they hadn't established Khan as like a all-timer, uh, you will remember this guy character where they can just basically sum him up in the movie with a hand wave. So, um, yeah, hold on. Before we get into the movie proper, I want to talk about how fucking crazy it is that they took one episode of the series and made a sequel to it for their big this is our chance to save the franchise movie because it doesn't seem that crazy nowadays, but keep in mind VHS wasn't even a thing. The only way to watch this episode, which was now 17 years in the past. And it was one episode of 80 episodes that, um, you know, that, that was unconnected. It's not like Khan was like a recurring villain. And if you know, Star Trek, you knew Khan, like, no, unless you saw it when it originally aired or caught it in syndication, there was no way for you to know who Khan was prior to this movie. Uh, there wasn't the internet to go look it up. Like who knows if there was even all these like insane reference books that popped up at the time, uh, in the 80s and 90s about like here's everything on every episode in 19 uh, in 1982 when this movie came out like it is kind of insane to go let's make a sequel to this one episode of a television series and make a like a true direct sequel even though um, you you don't need to have seen the episode I I imagine. It is a little confusing, some of the components, uh, especially when Chekhov gets there and they're talking about all these things. That's like, oh, that's that's kind of insane that they did that and no one cared. Everyone's like, yeah, no, we got it. But that's that's the great thing about the Wrath of Combo is you could you could honestly kind of make the same complaint about Carol Marcus. She's sort of a stand in for the many lost loves and one week flames that Kirk has yeah. had over the course of the original series. But she represents that idea that Kirk has had all of these disposable love interests and now one is coming back in the same way that Khan represents the idea that Kirk has had all of these one week villains that he's bested and yep. one of them is coming back. I, I actually, this, this actually, quick question, very... Peter, before we move on. What? Did you think Carol Marcus was from the original series? The way that they dropped her name so aggressively, I had a hunch because I was like, this must be someone that was at least referenced in the old show, but I just haven't gotten to the episode yet or, you know, I missed it. Yeah, I kind of I kind of thought so. I have to say the Carol Marcus thing, the fact that they bring Khan back sort of as Kirk's past haunting him, the fact that 
Um, this is this is like a bunch of old guys trying to decide if they want to get their you know um, take their spurs off the hook one last time or you know get back on the road or however you want to view a bunch of old guys getting back at it. Um, the movie Space Cowboys. Uh, <laughs> they, uh, That's the best incarnation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we watched Luke's Space remake Cowboys, of Wrath right? of Khan. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, whichever way you want to view that, I view this almost as like this movie is a hangover to the original series. Like this is some of the original series um, sins uh, coming back to haunt them and them having to contend with it. Uh, well, good, and this you know, really, f- and this really fits into something I mentioned last week. Um, which is there is a through line in all seven of the movies where original series cast members appear, and that is a fear of moving on and getting old. It was pretty implicit in Star Trek The Motion Picture, but it's really in The Wrath of Khan that they make that the theme of Kirk's character and his friends and everything else that extends all the way through Star Trek um, Generations. But as I mentioned uh, last week, it was even surprising how much they laid that groundwork in the motion picture. So even though, um, you know, there's a loose trilogy in the middle and then some of the movies just become their own episodic adventures, there is a thematic through line. And that is a fear of growing old, of growing past your prime and of um, having to to lose the things you cared about in your youth. So with that, I say we get more into Star Trek II Threat. Of All right, so really quickly, the plot of Star Trek II, if you haven't seen it, Kirk is an admiral. He has once again retired after getting the Enterprise back in the motion picture. He's teaching at Starfleet Academy or helping out. Uh, Spock is a captain who it has a, the Enterprise is kind of an older ship that it has a bunch of trainees on with the rest of the crew. Uh, so they've all kind of graduated to not explorers, but teachers. Um, they're teaching... Uh, uh, Rebecca from Cheers. Uh, the, no, uh, Christy Alley is a Vulcan who's kind of Spock's protege. Uh, and they're doing the Kobayashi Maru, which is an unwinnable test to see how you react in an unwinnable scenario. Uh, Kirk's the only one who's ever beaten it because he cheated. Uh, but it's his uh, philosophy that he doesn't believe in an unwinnable scenario. So. Flash forward to Chekhov, who decided to not, because he was the youngest one, I guess. He's like, I'm not ready to be a teacher. I'm still going to go explore. Um, He runs in there looking for a place for Project Genesis, which is this new technology that creates life where it doesn't exist. Um, And they're looking for a dead planet and run into uh, Khan. They think they're visiting SETI Alpha 6, but that planet got destroyed by a moon or some shit. Uh, and so that moved the orbit, and they're actually on SETI Alpha 5. And Khan's like, I recognize you. You're from Kirk's ship. I'm going to steal your vessel with these mind control worms and go get my revenge on Kirk. So he said he goes to the Genesis place, the space station, uh, sends a, uh, kills a lot of the crew. Sends a distress call to um, to Kirk, or Dr. Carol Marcus does, who has a son um, 
who's Kirk's. He doesn't know. Or no, he does know that. Uh, the son doesn't know that. Uh, and uh, Kirk goes, uh, basically takes all the cadets out because they're the only starship to go to the go uh, that are that's in the area, which happens on every movie. Um, <laughs> and uh, they say in the quadrant, which is very funny. If you know, uh, the writers did not know what a quadrant was, but <laughs> um, but uh, anyways, but people who had all the nerdy books like myself do. Uh, so anyways. So they go, uh, Khan's there, he attacks them because they just see it as the USS Reliant, not a uh, threat. So they cripple the Enterprise, Kirk beams down to the planet, tells Spock to leave. Uh, Kirk runs into Carol, they talk about their son, they show, they explain what Genesis is. Uh, meanwhile, Chekhov is there and he's still a spy with his earworm. Uh Khan's been listening in, Kirk tricked him into thinking that the Enterprise was beyond repair. Um... They end up uh, beaming back to the ship, and both ships have uh, gotten to some battle scars. They end up in a nebula where they can't use any of their equipment. They're basically like submarines without sonar, except submarines with a window, I guess, where you just look out it, wait to shoot people. Uh, They eventually stop Khan through this kind of uh, one-on-one battle. Uh, But in the meantime, he, uh, he sets off the Genesis device. Uh, Spock runs into the radiation to save the Enterprise. He dies himself. Uh, and then um, at his funeral, he shoots his co- they shoot his coffin out to the new Genesis planet, which uh, was created from the nebula that is, that is bringing new life. Hint, hint, wink, wink. There's going to be a sequel. Uh, <laughs> and Spock may be back. So um, I actually found out a lot about how that ending was not supposed to be that explicit, except that Leonard Nimoy, on while he was making the movie, he's like, you need to kill me as quickly as possible. I don't want to be in this movie. I hate William Shatner. And then he had so much fun making the movie. He's like, actually, leave me in. Like, oh, I might be back. Give, give a little <laughs> opening in there. So uh, I had no idea it was literally on set. And then the studio was so excited, they changed the ending, modified it a little to make it much more explicit that he was coming back. Uh, against Nicholas Meyer's wishes, the director. So, uh, so yeah, that is Star Trek Two. Andrew, what was your first experience with this movie, and what were your thoughts? It seems like it was pretty recently, actually. Yeah, it was. It was only, I guess, a, a little more than a year ago. Uh, I had the uh, the great benefit of getting to see it on the big screen. Uh, shout oh, that's out awesome! To, yeah, shout out to the the Dallas uh, Landmark Inwood Theater. Here in Dallas, Texas, uh, they did a midnight showing of it that timed up pretty perfectly with where I was in my grand original series watch. So uh, awesome. I, my wife uh, got me a nice red shirts T-shirt and we went down <laughs> to the movie theater and got to, to watch it on the big screen with popcorn and all, all the nine yards. So uh, <laughs> I will, I'll add this anecdote that my wife fell asleep uh, around two thirds of the way through the movie. So did not realize that Spock died, which was a kind <laughs> of important detail to glean from it. But in, in her defense, it was like two in the morning by the time that happened, which is a perfectly reasonable time to fall asleep. Um, <laughs> and I, I really enjoyed the movie. You know, it, it's, it is a film that is in some ways less cinematic than 
the motion picture because I don't think it is as much into the visual presentation uh, in the way that the motion picture was. It wasn't as devoted to these visuals in the same way that the motion picture was. But at the same time, it feels more cinematic. It feels more cognizant of the fact that this is an adventure movie and it, it jumps from scene to scene and has these space battles and all this other stuff going on that in some ways made it feel like the beginning of what Star Trek on the big screen was in a way that the motion picture wasn't. You know, it's sort of one of the weird things about motion picture. It's it's the orphan stepchild of uh, of the original cast because it's it's not quite a part of the original series and it's also isn't in the same doesn't have the same tone and the same uh, atmosphere that I think all the subsequent movies kind of share with the original yeah. cast. And so you, you get to Wrath of Khan and you can sort of tell this is the thing that sets the tone for what Star Trek is when you go to the movies now. And I, I think I had that sense uh, of it being the film that pulled Kirk and Spock and Bones and the Enterprise and everyone else into this world that they hadn't quite inhabited yet. And so I, I was certainly very impressed by it and, and you know, gives you a flavor for what you're going to get here on out. Well, and also is the movie that really uh, anyone would tell you that worked on the movie. Uh, not like they told me, I guess I just read it. Uh, but uh, <laughs> that this this saved Star Trek. Like um, mm-hmm. the motion picture was such a critical and at the time financial disaster that they weren't sure if they were going to make another one. Um, they removed Ron Barry. They um, hired a couple other people and were like, "You you need to make this for like ten million dollars, not forty five million dollars." And if it's a success, great. Um, and this was, you know, critical smash. It made about two hundred and twenty-five, two fifty in today's dollars, uh, just at the domestic box office, and kind of uh, revitalized interest in the movies, the characters, and led to the next generation about five years later, and kind of continued on uh, as we as we know Star Trek today. Uh, but this really was the movie that did it. And you're right. It does set up kind of the template for it. the amount of times they try to remake Wrath of Khan is legion uh, throughout <laughs> both, both the movies and the uh, and the episodes of the series. Uh, this is actually the fourth Star Trek movie that I saw. Uh, we, we never talked about the order that I saw the Star Trek movies in, but I saw six in theaters. Um, that was the first one I saw. And then four was on TV. Uh, and so that would have been like I was seven, eight. And then I really became obsessed about like nine, 10, 11 and went back and watched the motion picture and then tried to watch a bunch of episodes from the series, including Space Seed uh, before Wrath of Khan. I knew its reputation uh, even at that age and was really excited for it. Uh, I, I remember being slightly disappointed the first time I saw it because I'd heard it was the best Star Trek movie. Uh, and so I assumed it was better than my favorite and the one I absolutely loved as a nine or ten year old, which was uh, The Voyage Home. And when it wasn't, I was like, oh, that's not that's not the best. Everyone is incorrect. Uh, the Voyage Home is the best <laughs> one. Um, but like I said, it, it really is. It, and I think you, Andrew, you said it's the template. It, that is kind of why it's the best. It, it it does this formula that Star Trek moves into, at least from a, a cinematic standpoint, better than any other one. Uh, the Voyage Home is still my favorite. I really love Undiscovered Country, the motion picture, even Generations. Uh, but this is such a perfect movie that does so many things right that it's hard for um, – it's hard. I think it's hard to say that this isn't the best 
just from a presentation directing story standpoint. Um, and uh, I so I rewatch this one all the time. This is one of my favorite ones to put in uh, as I'm going to bed or like I don't have the energy for for a new movie. But this is like this is like one of my favorites that I can just throw in any time. Uh, I did watch it with uh, my wife. We bought a new projector for our basement. And so uh, she thought this was one of the new ones. And even though she has never seen she she has her own Star Trek. She's never seen a, one of the movies. And she's never, um, she's never seen an episode of the show. Uh, she thought it was one of the new ones. She's like, and I want to see movies on the projector, so I'm going to come down and watch it. And then when she realized it was one of the old ones, she almost left, <laughs> but she stuck with it, and she surprisingly ended up really, really liking it. Like she was like, oh, so I got to go back and watch the first one now. And I'm like, well, maybe, maybe we'll Hold press forward. Maybe we'll <laughs> press forward. There. Yeah. But I was, one I was honestly surprised. One of us. <laughs> I was, I was honestly shocked because my wife in general is not, she's not a big like cinephile movie watcher and she doesn't necessarily, there's, there's older movies that she likes, but she will rarely seek out a movie made before 1990. Um, and the fact that she watched something that she always assumed she wouldn't like, loved it, and was talking about other ones, and like was really engaged. Like she laughed out loud at that uh, "Are you out of your Vulcan mind?" and like, she, was, <laughs> she was really into it in a way I was not anticipating um, at all. And I think that speaks to the power of this movie. Like if you know Peter is actively engaging. Uh, in wanting to watch the movies, he is uh, he's kind of set some groundwork. He saw the first movie uh, and has a much bigger tolerance for both science fiction and um, and uh, movies made in the last century than my wife does. And even she was like totally into it, liked it and wanted to continue. So if that doesn't speak to the power of this movie, I don't know what uh, what does. That's pretty powerful, I think, because um, and it, it, it's pretty I think that's a pretty uh, uh, true testament to what kind of movie this is. So first off, I saw Into Darkness before I saw this, um, which made me like dislike Into Darkness um, at the time. But like I was like when Benedict Cumberbatch stands up and he says like, I am Khan. I remember being like. You you could have said Billy. Like I don't know who <laughs> this is. I don't know what dramatic weight you're pulling from. Like is it Into Darkness is the worst kind of soft reboot because it's like neither fish nor fowl. Like it doesn't work well for old fans because they get annoyed at how much that you're co-opting the past, and it doesn't work well for new people because there's too much of the plot relies on references to the past. Like the fact that the solution in Into Darkness is solved by some sort of like fuzzball things that i think are in the old series oh peter oh peter <laughs> <laughs> like they have like super blood that saves spock's life or some bullshit i don't remember that movie's the worst um but, uh sorry at the time it was only very bad now it's the worst because comparing it to wrath of khan which is like this film that very much wants to welcome you and new people into the series it doesn't particularly seem to care if you've seen the original episode it spends a very short amount of time uh explaining what happened before but all you need to know is this is a man from kirk's past who's here to haunt him and this is going to be more of a space opera uh, a space opera with heart and dramatic heft and it's going to be very dark like a lot of it is 
horror infused, which we'll get to, um, which is really fucking cool. Yeah, I'm not surprised you like the weird Lovecraftian mini mind control monsters. <laughs> oh, yeah, those things rule. Um, but uh, those felt like out of like a Dune adaptation that I actually like. Like, I was like, oh, I wish Dune looked more like this. Um, but anyways, so the fact that this the, the previous movie was sort of a melding of the slowness of the original series and the fact that the original series is about like humanist struggles, but it blows it up as some sort of... Um, 2001 a space odyssey dna and uh makes it into something a little bit more epic is something that i don't think audiences could figure out what to do with in the previous movie and this one i think audiences could figure out what the fuck to do with it because it's a rousing space opera and uh i'm not surprised at all that shauna liked it I personally thought it was going to be a bit more in the hole than uh, <laughs> than it was, but I watched it with uh, Molly, my fiance, on a plane coming back, and she was also pretty into it. She was like, she wasn't like laughing or like jumping up, but she was like, she like paused the movie at one point to ask questions, like that sort of thing. Um, well, an idea you actually watching on a plane is ideal because you're closer to space than Andrew and I were when we watched it. <laughs> yeah, so in a, in a sense, like, yes, Andrew watched it on the big screen, but I watched it in the clouds, baby. Yeah. <laughs> I'm in Kirk's territory. Uh, but, but yeah, so, so over, like, yes, I, I was very much into it. I was roused with, with a, a power of Star Trek while I was watching it. I, like, loved all the characters yet again, and I, but it was nice to have something like this that, uh, scratched at my id more than the previous one and yeah. and fed my like love for 70s space operas and my love for 70s horror movies and cheaper genre movies of the era i loved all of it i i think what's so impressive about a movie i've seen probably 50 75 times and i think this is what really drew shauna in and i'm sure drew both of you guys having seen it recently is like it is the definition of cinematically pulse pounding. It doesn't matter how many times I fucking see this movie when the Reliant first approaches, when you're waiting for Kirk to do his shift into um, into the fact that he actually has a plan and then they have a rematch and then the final like, uh, you know – the final nebula where you're just listening to beeps and people being quiet and still like it still gives me that heart racing feeling the like the 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 kind of stuff that like most even action movies i really enjoy now don't give me like i don't feel and i actually really love the marvel movie so i'm not trying to to uh, slag on them in the way that Peter has in previous episodes. But, um, you know, I, I love those movies, but they don't give me the same level of, like, tension um, that something like this does with, like, all of their quiet moments and their sudden bursts of chaos and and these, like, plans that they're trying to execute that you very clearly know what they're trying to do, but it's a race against whether Khan is going to be able to figure it out in time or whether Kirk's going to get caught off guard. Like, I was I was surprised it has been a couple years since I watched it, and just to hear my heart race and to, to like, and just feeling like I'm about to have a panic attack because I'm so... <laughs> 
because I'm just so into everything that's happening at those action scenes, I am not surprised that uh, I want to say like Janet Manslin from New York Times was like, now this is a Star Trek movie. And while I think that's incorrect from a like historical <laughs> Star Trek perspective, I get why you would watch this and go, holy shit, that was something because it is I, like it. It has about three or four moments that are on par, I think, with like the Death Star run at the end of the first Star Wars in just terms of how palpable the anxiety and tension is of what's going on on screen. I think it speaks to the way that the film sets up this tremendous chess match between Kirk and Khan, where they're each constantly getting the upper hand over the one another. You have punches and counter punches. You have blows and counter blows. And it preserves that tension because nobody is at the top of the hill for very long before they're toppled and the other person is climbing back up again. And it's yeah, one it's of like a fucking that, boxing movie. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That, that Each starts out, you, you know, you start out with Khan having the advantage of surprise and so he gets Kirk unawares and then Kirk has to do something clever because you know he's in the future and and also is playing with home field advantage because he knows starships in a way that Khan doesn't so he's able to use his Federation guile to you know get Khan's shield down and and even the playing field a bit and you just have that same kind of back and forth over and over and over again to where it never feels like a foregone conclusion or never feels perfunctory when the villain or the hero does something to put themselves ahead. It's constantly back and forth and it's constantly earned because it's based on Khan's inborn strategy and this, again, master tyrant uh, machinations that he has. But then it's based on Kirk's experience from having been a starship captain, from having lived and being able to think in three-dimensional space that shows you not just that this is one strong force meeting another strong force, that it's different strong forces that have rock, paper, scissors advantages over each other and don't guarantee victory to either side. The fact that this isn't going to – this movie was never going to end with – uh, these two muscle boys uh, beating the shit out of each other with pipes, uh, which is how the original <laughs> series, the original episode more or less ends that way. I mean, I know it's it's Kirk using some of his guile to get a pipe, but uh, it would have been weird if this one did end with like, all right, one more planet. We're going to try it. <laughs> The fact that it's not gonna it's not gonna end with these guys all greased up and shirtless, like uh, beating the shit out of each other, really, I think, makes it a more compelling struggle because the epic scale of it is so wonderfully communicated in small ways and large. Uh, it uses a lot of the efficiencies of the old show, um, where just good dialogue can make something seem so much bigger than it is. And uh, the advantages of having a movie budget um, to really make this this work on, on both your intellectual side to make it feel very dramatically compelling and big and, 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 and forward moving. You're in your id level. It feels expensive in a sense. Like, yes, no, this doesn't look as good as, I don't know, Return of the Jedi or whatever. But <laughs> it does have a density in the film that I think Star Trek deserved in its in its theatrical presentation. 
So here's what's crazy about the fact that they they don't meet. So they were supposed to in the original script. This went through a few revision uh, revisions. The story wasn't the director's idea. Um, but Nicholas Meyer had never seen an episode of Star Trek, got the script, and rewrote it in 12 days after watching a few episodes. Um, and Nicholas Meyer has basically been the most important voice in – cinematic star trek that there there was he directed this he directed six he wrote uh star trek four uh and now he is uh he's actually doing some of the tv stuff he's i think he's working on star trek discovery now he's doing some writing for them and it's just kind of crazy that this this outsider who was not a trekkie came in and was like oh i know what we do need to do to make all of this work completely rewrote the script uh, in a t- in a sh- very short period of time, and then has been responsible for m- or co-responsible for most of the Star Trek cinematic high points, uh, and now uh, essentially I think the best series since uh, since Deep Space Nine. It's especially amazing because if you look at Nicholas Meyer's career outside of Star Trek, he did um, he did the movie Time After Time, which is a really good movie that came out in the 70s. That's the uh, Jack the Ripper movie, right? Yeah, with Malcolm McDowell. It, I heard it's it. really good. Okay. It's really good. Um, but then Jack the Ripper, who also appears as a presence in the original series. <laughs> yes. All legendary bad guys do. Um, <laughs> um, I think Genghis Along Khan Genghis shows Khan up. Mind. Yeah. yeah. Um, oh, was it John Wayne playing Genghis Khan? <laughs> you think they had John Wayne money? It's like you know, it's like Hal Holbrook playing Mark Twain. I mean, once it's once you've made that indelible performance, people have to just keep bringing you back. You know, <laughs> yeah. Mark Twain shows up as well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah he does. Um, yeah, he's he's in a he's a major character in a, in a two part <laughs> Next Hal Generation Holbrook episode. Uh, no, um, but uh, yeah. It basically, if you name any historical figure, he shows up on Star Trek probably uh, at some point. But anyway, uh, yeah, it's just Yakov amazing that Nikolov. Oh yeah, no, he, he's the captain in Voyager. Uh, <laughs> he's he's Chekhov's cousin. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's just amazing that this this guy has essentially Nicholas Meyer just really was like, no, they shouldn't meet. It should all be through view screens. Khan should never get that level of satisfaction and really figured out how cinematic Star Trek worked so quickly. But, you know, it's just it's it's just insane because a lot of times you would assume that someone like that would come in that isn't a Star Trek person in general and he's like this has all these other amazing film stuff and then um and then occasionally makes helps out with the Star Trek stuff but it's like no he just he somehow just got Star Trek uh, or at least a, a a way to make Star Trek cinematic and then like that's all he's really ever done uh with his career he didn't capture the small subtleties i think of the of the show but i don't think he needed to this was a movie that was supposed to be like Let's make these characters interesting. Let's let let's make this approach to sci-fi interesting. Let's let's really sell people on why Star Trek still matters. And yes, that makes it more uh, approachable, more accessible, um, maybe a little bit less intellectual. But he seems to get the. You're right. He gets the characters very quickly. And my favorite character on the show is bar none, Doc. 
he gets to be uh have that sort of antagonism when mccoy brings him the bottle of uh whatever space hooch romulan <laughs> ale it's illegal oh it's vintage <laughs> is that so is that supposed to be like like Cuban cigars, like supposed to be yeah, like. No, I brought you a bottle of meth. It's illegal because it's meth. <laughs> no, you're you actually nailed it. It's a hundred percent because the Romulans are their enemies. They have like a cold war with. Uh, they're okay. on the other side of the Iron Space Curtain. Got it. Okay, so McCoy is my favorite character in the fact that they he brings booze and then he imme- and he brings the glasses and he immediately has this like this uh, come to Jesus moment with Kirk shows how much Nicholas Meyer got the characters or you know some facet of the characters very quickly. It was very, it's very impressive. Well, and what's interesting to me is that. Despite the fact that Meyer had not seen anything, or at least had only seen a handful of episodes from the show, in a lot of ways, Wrath of Khan feels at least a little bit like a deconstruction of the television program. Oh, yeah. It feels like it's it's reflecting on the television program in a way that I don't think, frankly, any of the other uh, original series or original cast films do. Because, you know, on the one hand, you have... The, like we talked about before, the arrival of Carol Marcus after so many dalliances that Kirk had had over the course of uh, the original series. And at the same time, a certain wistfulness that Kirk had expressed in a few episodes of what would it be like to have a normal life, to not be the captain, to not have this ship as my responsibility. And here comes this living, breathing reminder that all those dalliances were not so weightless, that there is a product of them. And here is a life, uh, a person that whose life he could have been a part of, a family that he could have had and is resistant to him now because of the fact that those dalliances were so weightless at the time. And then at the same time, it's this weird reflection on the way that television always reverts to the status quo, that you inevitably put the characters in danger and put them in these near-death situations but they have to come out unscathed. They have to be able to make it to the next week, which means that Kirk and Spock and Bones and the Enterprise never lose. That, that They always evade the Kobayashi Maru in that situation. There, there is no no-win scenario on television because there's always another, another episode to do. And here, finally, you have not only this, this sequel set up where Khan does come back as the ghost of Kirk's past coming there for revenge, but with Spock, you have Kirk suffering real meaningful loss in a way that hits him in the family that he does have for what is at least arguably the first time. That this is the first instance where Kirk both has to deal with his romantic past and the way that, as the captain of the Enterprise, he managed to avoid any great loss. Here it is, all in one snoot-filled platter to devastate him and lift him up at the same time. Well, and it's, uh, you know, you already mentioned, too, the fact that Khan is uh, works the representation of all the the weekly villains along with the Carol Marcus component. So it's, yeah, you're right. It's his past coming up to haunt him or coming back to to punch him in the face, I guess. Would be <laughs> way to put it. But another Hit him thing. with a pipe in the face. Exactly. Um, but beyond just the, the macro of that, which is Spock's death and David. I think this movie also does something that Star Trek had never done to that point um, of addressing kind of the the red shirt problem that the original series had. Like in the 60s television show, people died. And there's it's a common joke that if you're wearing a red shirt and you beam down to a planet, you weren't 
you weren't going to be transporting back uh, because <laughs> they would have to speak to the problem of a, a not a problem, but uh, reality of a weekly series is that you can't keep killing your main characters, but you want to have stakes. And I think even in addressing that in this movie, it is it does a really good job of it because you get to see I think the the engineer cadet really speaks to that where mm-hmm. you you are you are seeing brutality of death in a way that you've never seen for these one sentence one line characters before um where it's not just that this guy that said a line dies it's that he he had so much hope and so much optimism was so excited to be there and he dies brutally on the operating table you know trying to get one last a glimpse at his hero uh and he's even brought to the bridge like just graphically bloodied and scarred in a way that they could never show on a 60s television show but also didn't show in Star Trek the motion picture so it adds it also adds weight to the fact of that these random faceless people from week to week there is a there is a true cost of doing this sort of um pioneering or exploring or manifest destiny or whatever you want to call it that they're doing (laughs) out in space that uh, was always able to be waved away as and ignored on the television show. They're, they're, they're almost literally throwing it in your face when Scotty shows up on the bridge with a dead body and puts it right in front of the camera. Like, Hey, there's, there is a there is a true life cost that is happening here, uh, and I think that the, the the fact that that is such a strong moment excuses the fact that I don't know why Scotty went up from the bridge or, or from the engineering to the bridge to show a dead body to everyone. Yeah, uh, and especially like, of like uh, like the lowest of the low privates on the on the deck, like. Um, but anyway, well, well, so let me let me throw in I guess a little tidbit here, which is. Um, the the version that I saw uh, on the big screen happened to be the director's cut, where they explain in a scene that I later found out was deleted that that uh, ensign is actually Scotty's nephew. Uh, oh, okay, he, that's how he got the posting on the Enterprise. Basically, that there was a little nepotism there, oh. and I, I have to say, I think it's such a great performance in that one scene from James Doohan as Scotty. Like he, yeah, he sells the devastation in addition to the makeup and the, the blood and guts of it. That, that this is just such a devastating moment for him, and it makes it a devastating moment for you. I actually like it better if that they took that out because I think that speaks more to the idea that this was just you know uh that this what this wasn't like someone that scotty knew well but this is just kind of putting a uh brutality and a reality to these these one one line characters that died every week on star trek that was and that's and that's something that i really like about the original show and i liked seeing it blown up a little bit here is that the original show is almost never warmongering. And when they do have to, like, go out with their phasers and they're hunting a monster or whatever, um, there's a sense that they're like, I really wish we didn't have to do this, but, like, if we don't do this, more people are going to die. And uh, that war is hell sort of theme is very clearly inspired by the fact that, like, the show was written during Vietnam. Um, The original show. And... The, the people were seeing on their TV like way worse shit than they would ever see on Star Trek, right? Like they were seeing like horrific footage of, of people coming home in body bags, or people coming home um, 
with limbs missing, all that. Like, war has a cost, and the fact that Star Trek recognizes that is what makes it so interesting, because it's not escapist fantasy, even though it is about a figurative utopia. I want to get into some moments, because I do recognize that we're um, running a little short on time. Uh, I want to talk about the most iconic moment, uh, which is the yelling of Khan. <laughs> um, which has been used in a million internet memes, and I think it has been uh, used to kind of point out at what a hammy actor uh, Shatner is sometimes, even when he's being very intense. And I need to correct the record. I think it's important to note that that scene is being wildly taken out of context because Kirk, as a character, was hamming it up because he knew he wasn't being left on the planet. He was trying to project a level of um, anger at being left behind that wasn't real. He knew that Spock was going to come save him. So I think it works as someone who, as far as we know, Kirk has no professional acting training, doing his damnedest to sell the fact that he is being left behind. I'd say it's a real shame that Captain Kirk is a better actor than William Shatner is. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I had a problem with that. And I do... I agree with you that, like, it does help couch it that it was all a con and that, like... No pun intended. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wow. Um, It was all an elaborate con and a a ruse uh, to... Is there a character named Ruse? Um, (laughs) I'm sure. (laughs) A lot of episodes. Yeah. (laughs) But, like, that ruse still has to register to us as an audience as believable the first pass... Whereas to me, I just saw that moment as like, this is William Shatner being a bad actor. <laughs> Famous for a reason. It's very silly. Uh, it doesn't have the emotional punch that it should have. I think that they could have touched that moment in a hundred different ways that would have worked better. Shatner's really good at, at communicating heartbreak, still in this era. Very good at communicating heartbreak with his small, broken voice, which he does at multiple points in this movie. His, or at Spock's funeral. I think he kills yeah. it. I think it's really it, it, Spock's funeral. And when he's uh, talking to Carol Danvers about how much he's failed as a father and how yeah. much it hurt him to be that far away and yada yada. I do, I do like the, the Captain Marvel crossover. <laughs> Or when he's talking to McCoy at the beginning, too, and just talking about how he's scared of being old. Yeah, like the small moments, he actually does communicate heartbreak so much better than he does in the yelling con moment. And like, I agree with you. If you could couch it in the in the um, the fact that it's a ruse. But to me, the fact that on first pass, people laugh means that it's also not that good of a ruse. <laughs> I will say as someone who saw this at a younger age and before the Internet had and before even Seinfeld had referenced it, I will say that uh, I like I I can remember I never thought like I, I, to be fair though I was surprised when I was like twelve or thirteen and I remember people saying that Chatner was a bad actor, you know I was like <laughs> what are you talking about he's great, um, but uh, yeah uh, I but I I don't like it didn't stand out for me as a as a child which I know is not a good indicator of whether something's good or bad but. Well, I, I'll say this. As much as I have poked fun at, at Bill Shatner's acting uh, in this podcast, I think Wrath of Khan is probably his best dramatic performance, at least in the films. You know, I think he gives 
I, I think he gives a great comedic performance in Star Trek Four. Yeah. I think he does good things elsewhere. But Shatner, as a dramatic actor, I think finds his peak here. And the reason he does, at least in my opinion, is that he's able to find those quiet human moments in Kirk that bring him down to earth as a real person in ways that, frankly, sometimes the original series wasn't always great at doing at a consistent basis. But he also recognizes, and maybe this is, is Nicholas Meyer recognizing, that this is also a big, brassy movie at times. And he knows and finds the places where it's okay for William Shatner to go full Shatner and, and yell Kirk at the top of his lungs or, <laughs> or say, I feel young again. And it's not, it's not naturalistic exactly, but it's very expressive. I think there's no better Star Trek movie uh, for at least with the original cast, for balancing those two parts of Kirk and figuring out when he can be a little more subtle in his performance and feeling when he is that scene-chewing, eye-bulging, whirling dervish of capital A acting that William Shatner <laughs> could be sometimes. Well, I don't think it's a mistake, too. They they like to pair Shatner with uh, other actors who are doing some big things. Like, it works because Montalbaum is so dramatic and over-the-top, and it, it feels more natural from, from Ricardo than it does from Shatner, but it helps, like... If you had a very, like, subtle performance as a villain, it doesn't quite work, I think, uh, paired opposite Shatner. And also, like, the other movie where he has a true villain that works in that way is Christopher Plummer in Star Trek VI. And he's also doing, like, over-the-top Shakespearean stuff that that pairs well with Shatner's uh, louder instincts. Ricardo Montalban, I think, shows just like William Shatner does – uh, it can't be escalation in uh, this movie compared to Space Seed. Uh, they both were much smaller actors back in the day, maybe with less range. I don't know, but they were much smaller actors back then. And in this one, they're much bigger, broader and like more syrupy actors. Um, Montalban's really fun in this. Uh, his yeah. costume is amazing. Oh, we didn't talk about something yet. The costumes got better. The costumes were fucking awful. Oh yeah, movie. I told I told you they get really good in Star Trek <laughs> too. They keep they keep these costumes for fucking ever. Even like when Picard was a cadet, like fifty years later, they still have these uniforms. These are good uniforms. They they do get better, especially between the show, which I think has really cool uniforms, and uh, the first movie where the uniforms were miserable. Like, well, remember it was Easter. <laughs> I'm gonna be a contrarian because I like the the Star Trek one uniforms. Oh I like God. the sort of the sort of like dull pastel thing. And I always thought that the the movie uniforms, the the Star Trek two through six uniforms, where they're doing the faux navy thing with the big flap, always felt like too much to me. It felt so different from what they did in the original series. Uh, just, I don't There's know. There's literally someone in the first movie that's wearing a tan jumpsuit that looks naked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, the only the only one I like in the motion picture is uh, Kirk's first one that he wears. Like with the green and the white. Mm-hmm. But otherwise. It's like yeah. his command uniform. Yeah, because later on he he's like. I'm going to cut loose with the rest of my 70 Hepcats and I'm going to go like light blue short sleeve, but like almost tank top short sleeve. But the one he has at the beginning when he's still in admiral mode is really good. 
But I, I feel like for the movie uniforms, and I know they're iconic now, it just sort of makes me think uh, – there's a line from Friends where it's like uh, – uh, mom's gonna be the cutest grandmother at the fake military parade or something <laughs> like that. Like, there's just, there's just so much to them. They, they, I don't know. I mean, to each their own. It's, it's, it's all subjective there, but. The show is so good when it's this sort of like, it's sort of sober and thoughtful that like having a, bouncy 70s style leotard like in the last movie (laughs) so distracting and having something that i can kind of like visually ignore is so much better because i'm focusing on like the performances as opposed to like these 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 uh leotard jumpsuits that seem to be built on movement Um, (laughs) but yeah i i teach their own but i i'm glad to be back to something more conservative uh i still think the coolest is in the in the original because it it, uh threads that line of the mid-century modern sort of cool sleek thing but it's also pretty practical i actually think the original series uniforms from the reboots are my favorite versions of the uniforms. They just look a little better produced because of the budgets and time and stuff like that. But the design is my favorite. And then I love those versions in the new movies. Um, my least favorite is the ones that they decided were fucking awesome for first contact through Nemesis. I hate those weird ones where they all just started wearing blue. I don't, I don't like that. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, but. Uh, there's one other moment I definitely want to talk to, and then I'll, you guys can talk about some of your favorite moments. Uh, and I'm I'm actually excited for both of you guys to talk about this because you just saw it recently, which is I think the best individual moment of any Star Trek movie, which is the moment where Kirk flips up that communicator to ask Spock if he's ready to be beamed up. That <laughs> is the f- when you realize what they've done. And it goes from the screaming and feeling like they've been deserted and what are they going to do? And, of course, you understand they're going to get out of this situation. They're going to get out of this scrape. But the but what he ended up doing and the fact that when Spock is saying, yep, we got full power, we got phasers, we're going to – let's go. Let's go take a run at them and all this stuff. It just – it always makes me want to jump up on my seat and throw my hands up in the air. It is such – a satisfying moment. I definitely agree because, again, this is a movie that is very action-heavy in certain ways, that you have the space battles and you have things blowing up and exploding. But at the end of the day, so many of the choices that Kirk and the Enterprise crew make that allow them to win are things they do because they come up with smart decisions. They come up with clever schemes. They come up with intelligent ways to best and outsmart Khan, not just to beat him with brawn or power. And I think that's what makes that moment so exciting is it's not just like, oh, hey, we've got an even bigger weapon that we're going to use on him. It's like, ah, he thinks he's the the smartest tyrant to ever stroll out of the botany bay while you're (laughs) in my century now, Jack. Well, and it's been nothing but shit for like 30 straight minutes. Like, this person's dead. The guy shoots himself in front of everyone. The Enterprise has been crippled like... It just keeps getting worse and worse and worse as a first-time viewer. And so you're like, man, even the Enterprise is all fucked up. How are they going to get out of this? And just hearing that uh, everything isn't as bad as you thought. And uh, yeah, we're, we're ready to go. Let's go fight this. It's just – oh, I just love it so much. 
Maybe I don't I don't know if it had the same resonance with you, Peter, but I think this movie worked for me on pretty much every dramatic level. I had small problems with certain moments like uh, Kirk yelling Khan and how the Genesis project gets stolen because it's just sort of like, all right, well, now we have a thing in the room and then we know they're in the room. So now we can steal it. And it's like, well, why did you even need to send anybody into the room if you could just steal it without moving it from where it was originally? Like They got to get the coordinates. You just not, do not know how transporters work, Peter. And I think that's your fault. You should have educated yourself on how transporter coordinates work. I don't know. Were you just going to beam, just beam randomly into the planet? They didn't know it was in the middle of the planet. He doesn't give a shit. Why does he give a shit? You have so much to learn about beaming. <laughs> Those dilithium crystals aren't cheap. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. I agree with you. Like, dramatically, this all this all worked for me. And the moment when they all get the, the crew back together gave me, like, a little rush, even though literally the last episode was the same thing. <laughs> the last movie. <laughs> they all kind of end like that. Uh, I say good, I, I've got good and bad news for you if you liked that scene. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Is it going to be in every single one? The Undiscovered Country one's the best of those. Oh, okay. Uh, but... Uh, will I, I love I just uh, I think one of my favorite things in fiction is is wistfully uh, thinking about the past and people catching up the sort of old Lang Syne scene. It, it really touches me somewhere. Um, it used to not. But I think every year I get older, it touches me more and more. Do you, uh, we should probably talk about Spock's death. Who? Spock. I'm just kidding. Spock. <laughs> just um, he, just uh, to my yeah. wife, if she's listening, spoiler alert. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Spock died. My wife was not happy when Spock died, <laughs> and I needed to explain to her in intricate detail how he comes back um, because she was not – she was like, I'm not going to watch any uh, – Spock is clearly her favorite character and was not happy. Spoilers for Peter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think I think that's a fair spoiler that he understands that the next one called Search for Spock <laughs> doesn't um, end with them throwing up their it, hands and going couldn't find him. <laughs> yeah, and, it and, doesn't say finding of Spock. <laughs> did you guys look at the Genesis planet? You did. Um, uh, let's go on I a different adventure. That they jettisoned his corpse into space, oh. and then Kirk was like, "Oh shit, I left my wallet in that." Um, it'd, be, <laughs> it'd be great if they opened it up and they're like. We found them, and they were like, ooh, we forgot about, like, uh, mass and energy and kinetic energy work, because uh, that was a big impact, and he is just jelly inside this thing. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then Kirk's like, oh, yeah, my wallet was in my pocket the whole time. <laughs> um, yeah, but how did that how did that play for you guys, uh, knowing that Spock was going to come back? I just treated it as death-death, because I uh, didn't know that, like, the next movie was necessarily going to do that. But I did know that, like, the next movie, they would at least have some sort of interaction with Spock. Anyways, but the it, it worked for me very well on a dramatic level, because I think both Leonard Nimoy and William Shatner toned it down and, like, had a very touching moment where even though they might like kind of hate each other in real life, <laughs> there is this moment of connection that feels very, very real. And it doesn't feel like Shatner is, is necessarily just playing as Kirk. It feels like Shatner is having this moment with a guy that he has spent a lot of time with. Vague spoilers for the next few movies. I think they do a really good job of not just being like, oh, hey, Spock's back. They They give it time and wait for him to become a complete person in the same way that he was before. So uh, they do it 
unlike now where like people just come back like, like into darkness it's like 10 minutes later i think kurt comes back and then in a lot of these other movies where they're trying to kill off a main character they um you know he they're back the next movie or something like that the same as they were um this one actually takes the the fact that his death pretty seriously um, and doesn't just give you Spock back in the way that you would. A- Andrew, I don't want to step on you talking about how what de- uh, Spock's death means to you. Yeah, but uh, it was my third grade essay. <laughs> but real quickly, is that why Kirstie Alley is in this movie, other than adding a bankable star to it? Because they well, she wanted wasn't to- bankable. This is pre Cheers. This she is was- pre Cheers. Yeah, so- uh, yeah, well before Cheers, she was she was essentially a nobody. Was this trying to get someone on the on the payroll who didn't have an ASPCA card or whatever? Uh, I screwed that joke up. What's the ASPCA. old people card? Yeah, <laughs> ASPCA just to get, card, just to get someone who doesn't want to protect animals. <laughs> <laughs> she's not she's not good in this movie, and I don't know why she's in this movie other than they wanted someone younger, someone with a little bit more of a new energy, someone as a Spock replacement. I think there at least been some reluctance from Leonard Nimoy for a long time because I know, and I don't know if you guys have touched on this already, but in the motion picture, there's that other Vulcan that you run into very briefly who's part of Star Trek. And apparently at some point in the scripting process for that, he was supposed to be essentially Spock's replacement if Nimoy uh, didn't return to the franchise. So I, I think it's sort of a, a backup plan in some ways that, look, if you're going to do Star Trek, you're going to need a Vulcan. There's just no way around it. And so they did have, I, I don't know if it was officially because they, they needed a replacement for Nimoy, but I do think part of the introduction of that character is to have another recognizable person who can fill that space in the crew if need be. Yeah, I think you're 100% right. Okay. So she's like a placeholder uh, Vulcan. <laughs> Yeah, essentially, and she is in um, her character is in three, but she was played by a different actress. Oh, okay, that makes sense. And sort of in six, but we can talk about that later. Uh, Andrew, what did the death of Spock mean to you? Did it work for you? Did it feel silly because they're just going to bring him back? Like, yeah. So I mean, even knowing a hundred percent that Spock is going to come back because you know he's on the poster for the next movie. Um, <laughs> I still think that the the film had a lot of emotional resonance at that point for me. Because even if we know that Spock is coming back, Kirk doesn't know that Spock is coming back. And this moment is him having to face the Kobayashi Maru in real life. And it's it's Spock having to face the Kobayashi Maru in real life. That here is an event where you cannot escape unscathed. Both of them have an emotional response to that. For Spock, it's one of sacrifice. It's of a realization that these are people that he cares about and he is going to make the ultimate sacrifice in order to keep them safe and fulfill his duty as a Starfleet officer. And for Kirk, it's the culmination of so many adventures, of at least 79 adventures, depending on whether or not you want to add in the animated series to that where they came into these death-defying moments and, in fact, defied death. In fact, got away without losing a whole lot. And now he has to watch his best friend in the entire world die before his eyes. Even knowing that they kind of undo that moment, granted, I, I agree with Aaron, I think they do a lot to earn it at the same time. But even knowing that that moment gets undone, it's real while you're watching it. The emotions of the characters are real while you're watching it. And the effect on the characters is real while you're watching it, which is why I think that that scene works uh, 
it works great if you come in cold, but I think it still works if you come in knowing where the series is at least likely going to go down the road because of what it means to the the people who are involved in it. Yeah, no, that that's a great point. Um, yeah, and it's, it's still. I mean, I've seen it so many times now, but it, it's so it still is very affecting when his voice cracks when he says. Uh, he was the most human. It is like, uh, you know, it's a it's a it's a choke up moment. It still gets me. Yeah, I, I even uh, if that would be a terrible insult to him because uh, he did not <laughs> like being referred to as as human. But uh, uh, I'll take the sentiment over the specifics. And, and like uh, like Spock, I uh, I have a problem communicating uh with crying a lot of times i have a problem crying during movies like this but i i even got like, like a little a little, a little twinge <laughs> um it doesn't matter if he comes back the characters that matter to me in this moment think this is the end and so i'm sharing their emotions right um i think that's something that gets lost in the comic book discussion which as much as i hate just killing characters bringing them back killing characters bringing them back like i think you kind of get to pull that once um in the comic book discussion, I think what gets lost is, does the death feel like they're committing to it? And does the death have, like, an emotional ballast in that moment? Like, but yeah, I think it's why people get frustrated about it so much is because they do feel it and they don't want to admit, they don't want to admit or talk about how sad it made them. <laughs> <laughs> uh, besides the comic books, I guess I don't know how often the comic books in the early 80s were killing off people and bringing them back. My guess is it wasn't as common of a trope until, like, the mid 80s late 80s when they did the crisis on infinite earth thing um and started killing off a bunch of people that's just my guess from someone who does not read comics but is aware of a little but bit there was like death of a death of superman where they tried to kill him and then they like because but that was that was 90s i'm not saying that this is directly related to the comic books or whatever i'm, I'm just saying like it's the same sort of emotion i think like the same sort of like uh sadness dash frustration no, I get it. What I what I'm saying is I'm I'm wondering if this is the first instance oh. of a major pop culture figure being killed off only to be brought back. Like I I don't know if I can think of an earlier version of this level. Well, so my my dad claims that it is that at least in terms of significance. Though I mean I'm I'm pretty sure Sherlock Holmes has a, an instance where he is seems to be killed off and then they kind of hand wave him returning in a later story, if I'm not mistaken. And you oh, know, I, yeah, I don't think we, we have to to make too far of a stretch in this festive season to remember that kind of resurrection, the idea of resurrection is built into to Western civilization in some way, that it's just something we think of as a, a powerful, powerful part of how we tell stories in the West, I think. Yeah. Yeah, just because they got to come back and be alive does not mean that their sacrifice was nothing. Uh, yeah, that's no, a great point. Any other little moments that you guys want to talk about before we get into final thoughts? I mean, we're we're horror guys. We didn't talk about the ear thing. Oh, that much. sorry. Yeah, let's talk about the ear slug. All right, they <laughs> land on this desert planet. It's very creepy. It, it, it's reminiscent of later works like Dead Space and <laughs> an Alien and and also or I guess Alien was earlier, but it's it's reminiscent of of these kind of works where they land on this like desolate planet. And they're poking around people's shit, and then all of a sudden they see one little thing for Botany Bay, and if you I don't know. I, I knew Khan was coming, but it still gave me a little like, 
And then when Khan shows up, I thought he was just going to beat the shit out of these guys, punch him up. Instead, this weird little terrarium with these creepy-ass practical effects scorpion monsters. And he starts pulling bugs off the back, and you're like, I don't know what he's doing, but I don't like it. And that that whole idea of him just dropping it in the helmet and then putting the helmet on is such great space horror. Yeah. It fucked me up when I was a kid. Oh, it it's, it's so creepy. I think it's it's very much in line with the um, Indiana Jones Temple of Doom hurt scene where it's like, that is some crazy body horror to show to a kid. But this movie was on TV growing up. And uh, Peter, I don't know if you were aware of this, but they actually, for the scene where the, the bug, I think, both goes into and goes out of Chekhov's ear, they actually did a mock-up of a sort of... 10 times the size Chekhov's ear and had uh, the the worm physically go into it uh, as a prop. So you can see a picture of it. It's just like, you know, a human being standing next to this giant, uh, you know, whale of an ear two feet away from them. That's awesome. I love oh, that. The- <laughs> that's, that's a sort of practical effect shit that, like, um, you, I never want to lose. I know they still do stuff like this on occasion with these, like, the big Marvel movies and such, but... Um, the fact that they had to do that to make this effect register and to make it as creepy as they wanted it to be uh, really makes it sink in. This is, yes, it is left to your, they could have left it to your imagination a little bit more, but the fact that we got to see it creeping and crawling to the ear and get a little like Cronenberg in there is like, oh, delicious. <laughs> That's what I needed. And it's what I needed to like really get me emotionally on board this early on and to make me really, really want Khan to get blow up, blown up. Uh, the other trivia part that uh, that you forgot, Andrew, is that Walter uh, Koenig took that model home and fucked it. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and it's also worth mentioning that that Chekhov is not in Space Seed and never uh, interacts with Khan. So it is kind of funny that that this is his moment <laughs> that he is the one who is the audience avatar in some ways and be like, "Oh crap, Khan's back and that's a big deal." <laughs> it is it is kind of weird. It's like almost like he heard the story secondhand or he was like below deck when all this was Yeah, happening. he's probably below deck. People get promoted on starships. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, do you know why this is a random thing. I forget if we asked you this. Do you know why Chekhov was added to the second season, Peter? Uh, no. Is it to defuse some sort of Cold War tensions because he's Russian? Uh, no, they wanted someone. Uh, so the Monkees was a big hit. Oh, my uh, God. And, and so they <laughs> wanted. look like Mickey Dolan's or something? Yeah, well, he just had the same like monkey's haircut and uh, they wanted like a cute heartthrob like the monk that looked like <laughs> one of the monkeys to be on Star Trek to attract more uh, younger women viewers. Hell yeah. So, what yeah. A, what a, what a Who would have thought Pavel Chekhov exists because <laughs> uh, people want to fuck the monkeys. And so that's why <laughs> that's why Pavel Chekhov uh, had a, a space worm in his ear. What, and George Takei was off filming the green berets right so they needed a substitute helmsman <laughs> so <laughs> that's pretty cool um, i really yeah. like that uh, i mean cool i mean uh, fucking weird the, the concept <laughs> of sex appeal has changed greatly in uh, over time yeah. yes so yeah so look out if you take a furlough from your job for some reason because you may get replaced by like a young hunky monkeys look alike <laughs> hunky monkey yeah oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, Andrew, any other moments uh, for you that you want to mention before we go to final thoughts? 
I would just say very briefly that I, I like the scenes early on in the movie between Kirk and Spock and Kirk and Bones because they feature something that I think, honestly, we don't get enough of in the movies going forward. It just... Seeing these people as friends, seeing them being old buddies together, and that kind of second uh, shorthand rapport that they have with one another. It adds instant relatability and understanding to the characters when you're reintroducing them to the audience. And I really appreciate that part of it. Uh, I think you're forgetting a little part where they go on a little camping trip, Andrew. <laughs> Which is one of the reasons I am a, a – you're going to be – You'll get there. I'm a defender of that movie, at least for that part of it. it yeah. It's that I, thing that none of the other Star, Star Trek movies have. Here's the thing. Uh, we'll, we will get there. Uh, all six of the original movies, uh, I I like. Like, there's they're, 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 they're like Bond movies to me or Godzilla movies. Like, I love these characters enough that um, – that I'm that, that even the worst movie for me is three out of five stars. Uh, it's only when we get into um, the last two Next Generation movies that they really become kind of like I don't enjoy watching this. Uh, but <laughs> uh, we will get there. So yeah. So my final thoughts are um, I'm well. I'm glad that uh, Peter uh, liked it as much as I thought he would. It would have really surprised me if you didn't, Peter. This one felt like a slam dunk. Uh, from the beginning, and I was glad it was so early on. Um, I think I'm really excited to talk about the next two movies with you because it is really cool how they do this um, kind of uh, interconnected trilogy in the middle of this uh, six-movie original series character arc. Yeah, I just – I loved watching. I loved watching it uh, not on the same big screen that um, – that Andrew got to see it on, which I would love to see at some point, but even just watching it projected on a, a wall in my house, it just, it just feels so cinematic and exciting. And I was just on my, the edge of my seat for the entire time. So, um, you know, if the first movie that we did really made me feel good and revisiting some early, early episodes and getting and uh, getting to watch um, the motion picture for the first time in a long time, this is like Peter. You and I already talked about it. Like we were trying to figure out a way to record the Star Trek three episode in the next couple weeks before Christmas, uh, and while that's not going to happen, uh, Star Trek two gets you so pumped up that we were like. <laughs> trying to find a way to force it into our schedules while not ruining Christmas for our loved ones. Yeah, I was like, I want to see, <laughs> I, I want to see what the fuck uh, Spock is up to next. I want to see uh, he opens a bar in the Florida Keys. <laughs> <laughs> and the fact that I like the first movie means I will be, uh, I think, better prepared when the, it, it when and if the series steps away from this sort of like lean, mean, fast moving space opera. Because if they're hunting for whales, I imagine it's going to yeah, be... They're, def- they're hunting for whales. <laughs> well, well, yeah, they want the whale oil, I imagine. Yeah, all the... That's uh, where dilithium crystals stop working and all of a sudden only whale oil powers <laughs> their starships. Uh, yeah, I'm really excited for that one for you. Uh, Andrew, your final thoughts? So I, I'll say this one last thing about Wrath of Khan. One of the things that I love about it is how it works on so many different levels. It works just in pure text as this clash of the titans, of these two great men from two different eras having to constantly outsmart each other and one-up one another and take a pound of flesh from one another. Uh, But it also works as this sort of meta-reflection on all these things that couldn't really happen in the original series of people dying, of 
disposable love interests and one-week villains coming back to haunt you of what the difference of aging is when you're talking about 1982 versus 1966 and the different ways that the performers just look and interact with each other. And then it also just works as a character story. It works as a, a tale of Kirk himself getting older and reckoning with that, of uh, Spock working with his friendship and reckoning with his friendship with these people, and of, of Khan having, frankly, some pretty legitimate beefs with the people who essentially marooned him for a decade and a half. Uh, one of the things that I think makes Wrath of Khan so accessible as a film is that there's so many ways to come at it, so many different angles to look at it from, while still in some ways getting the whole of it, which is a, an incredibly impressive achievement for, for any movie in my book. Yeah, agreed. That's a beautiful way to end it. Um, Andrew, thank you so much again for coming on. I know in the break we made some plans for our other podcast for you to be guest on. Um, I'm so glad uh, that you joined us for this. Uh, this was excellent. Uh, where can people uh, find your, your work? This will come out in January. But where where can people find uh, your work? And I know you wrote a fantastic essay uh, as well on this movie. Oh, you're, you guys are very kind both to, to say that and have me on. And let me say it's, a, again, a blast to get to nerd out with my Trekkie side <laughs> with you guys. For thank, thank you for giving me the, the canvas upon which to do that. Uh, if anybody's interested in, in uh, hearing more of my, my nerdy thoughts, uh, you can find links to all of my writing from all across the web at my website, which is theandrewblog.net. That's three words, theandrewblog.net. Uh, you can also find me as part of Consequence of Sound's expanded film and TV coverage, where we will, we've covered Star Trek Discovery in the past and we'll be covering Star Trek Discovery in the future. And you can also find me on Twitter at theandrewblog. So thank you guys so much for having me and, and letting me partake in, in Peter's grand uh, journey through the stars. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much you, you were an awesome inclusion and you really made this episode all come together and i was really glad that aaron had someone else to bounce off of uh the star trek love because uh i'm still it's still growing in me thank you so much for coming on <laughs> you know i we've talked about ways to figure out some special one-offs afterwards too and i, I would really like to revisit with some of these early guests uh, on on future episodes after we go through all the movies about how uh, Pete's Star Trek adventure ended up as well. So we will include links to all of all the things you mentioned in the show notes too. So if you didn't write it down or were driving or something, please uh, please check that to check out his excellent writing. So uh, Peter, next week. I don't know why we keep saying next week, and that's just because we're just so used to saying it. But it's actually next month because we're doing these once a month. Uh, but next month, we're doing Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock. Uh, and the the episode I'm going to uh, pair that with, uh, this is a tough one uh, because there's not there's not going to be any ones that are as easy as Space Seed, Wrath of Khan. Uh, but I think it's important because you have not got much of a sense of the Klingons and the Klingons are a big part of Star Trek Three to pick the best Klingon episode from uh, the original series. So we're going to do Errand of Mercy uh and star trek 3 the search for spock uh and the noise i heard in the background is andrew throwing down his paper because he has a better thing on episode <laughs> that was not my noise uh, no i uh there is a i've said this before there is a weird pressure even though in theory i don't care about like 
picking the Star Trek episodes that are going to be your guideposts to both the series as a whole and like uh, and and movies because Star Trek fans are uh, have such a complete knowledge of like episode titles and uh, know all the stuff about it that everyone has their own ideas and thoughts about what they would pick. And I would too in a very constructive way. Like, oh, I, it's really fun for me to get to figure out what to pair. But there is like a, a huge pressure uh, that no one I know is putting on me. But it does feel <laughs> like, okay, I can't fuck this up because – everyone's going to have an opinion on this uh, what they would do in that situation so uh, Aaron don't let just that pressure come down on you also carry the pressure that if you pick the wrong episode it might make me hate Star Trek it's true that I'm less worried about. I don't care about your opinion as much as random Star Trek fans' opinions. Uh, this, you yeah, know what the lithium crystals in, uh, are, Peter. The opinions of a fictional Star Trek fan who is sending yeah. us hate mail. So far, things yeah. are going great, Aaron. No um, it was either that or Trouble with Tribbles, but I figured Trouble with Tribbles will say for for something else. Uh, that that does have Klingons, but it's is definitely a. Uh, Definitely a different type of episode. That, I mean, the yeah, fact that really you good. can't really seem to say the title makes it very promising. I don't know it's why. The trouble with tribbles. The trouble you, with you, tribbles. Oh, okay. You should show him one of the animated series Klingon episodes so you can see them dressed in all pink due to a coloring error. <laughs> I don't remember that. I haven't seen any of the animated series episodes since I was a child. Uh, so I may have to pick up one of those DVD box sets and revisit it. I remember liking what I was seeing, but very frustrated that no one moved. Uh, I, <laughs> I think even for the 70s, they were like, let's just show pictures and have people talk. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah. Maybe we'll do an animated episode. We'll, we'll see. A lot of places this could go uh, after the movies are over or go absolutely nowhere because Peter is sick of it. One of, one of the two. <laughs> so, uh, thank you so much. Uh, and we will see you next month as we dig around for that old mysterious Spock character. <laughs> Good night. Good night. Hey folks, thanks for listening to We Love to Watch. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we've got just a few quick announcements for you. There ain't nothing in the rule book that says that we can't do some of our own plugs, baby. If you'd like to talk to us, uh, tell us we're stupid, tell us we're beautiful. The quickest way to get to us is our Facebook group, facebook.com slash we love to watch, or our website, WLTWpodcast.com. Leave us a comment. Tell us we're doing a good job. Only tell us we're doing a good job. We're so sensitive. We're sensitive boys. We're soft boys. And uh, if you'd like to help other people, if you enjoy our show and want other people to be able to listen to this fine, fine program that we produce at no cost, we don't get any money for this. You guys have yet to pay us anything. We live and we breathe off of good reviews from iTunes. So if you would please go to iTunes, review our show, give us a positive rating. We would love to get more and more people involved in this show and this community. I know you hear it all the time, but it really does help. And we're also available if you don't use iTunes. We're also available on Google Music, Stitcher, 
tune in we're currently on soundcloud we'll take that out if soundcloud goes away (laughs) that's it thanks for listening stay tuned guys on our facebook page especially we're gonna have a lot more polls a lot more prizes and a lot more uh, interaction with you guys so keep it tuned in uh let us know what you guys are thinking and again above all else thanks for listening to we love to watch